Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Imagine you're at home and your stomach starts to grumble. You wander into the kitchen looking for a snack. If you've got a bowl of candy on the counter or a bag of chips... That's probably what you're going to go for. But what if I told you making a small tweak to where you keep your food might entirely change your snacking habits? My family tried this out in a little experiment. My wife and I put all the junk food, all the chips, the candy, the sodas, in the hardest-to-reach places in our kitchen, on the highest shelves, and at the very back of the cupboard. And we took our healthiest snacks and we put them in the most visible places. There was a big bowl of fresh fruit on the counter, a pitcher of unsweetened iced tea on the kitchen table, and baby carrots and hummus at eye level in the fridge. Sure enough, for all of us, me, my wife, and my three daughters, this changed our behavior. We still had the option to go for the junk food, but when we walked into the kitchen feeling peckish, more often than not, We reached for what was immediately available, and we made the healthier choice. I really felt like we had cracked a major code, a major life hack, as they say. Now, some of this may sound very familiar to you. And as it turns out, there's a lot of behavioral science behind why this kind of tweak is so effective. There's even a whole field of research now devoted to the idea. It's called nudge theory. And it's all about understanding the invisible forces that steer our decision-making. When it comes to just about any decision, from the small things, like what to wear tomorrow, to the big things, like whether to donate your organs, the way the options are laid out can influence the choices we make. So what would it look like to use that knowledge of decision-making for good? To nudge people toward choices that make their lives healthier and even more fulfilling? Right now, right under our noses, people all around the world are using nudge theory to do just that. Nudges have changed the way doctors prescribe medications. They've helped hungry kids get free meals, and they've even put more money into your retirement fund. But how exactly do they work? And why do they work? Today on the show, we explore the power of nudges, how they can help us achieve our personal goals more effectively and could they even help us out of our current crisis. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. I gotta tell you, when I first heard about nudge theory, I have to admit I felt a tiny bit of dread. To me, a nudge is what I received from my wife when I've forgotten to take out the trash or have left the wet clothes in the washing machine for too long. But to behavioral scientists, it's not like that. A nudge isn't about reminding you that you've dropped the ball. It's about helping you over the hurdles of being human in almost an invisible way. Behavioral science teaches us that there are many surprising factors that can influence our behaviors, factors that we might not even be consciously aware of. 
Maya Shankar is the senior director of behavioral economics at Google. She's also the former chair of the White House's social and behavioral sciences team under the Obama administration. If we want to design public programs and policies to be effective, it's really important that we design these policies with these factors in mind. And I would define nudges as design tweaks that we see in any given policy or program that reflect this understanding of human behavior. Now, nudges aren't just in programs and policies. They also get used by corporations to make us buy more or use their services more, like when Netflix makes the next episode automatically start right away. But folks like Maya are thinking about this from the perspective of the government. From 2013 to 2017, Maya used nudges to make federal programs better. It wasn't about partisan politics or Big Brother forcing your hand. It was about making it easier to make good decisions. A very clear example of this is the government offers what's called the National School Lunch Program. So this is a program designed to help low-income students get access to lunch every day at school and be given the opportunity to thrive. And what was tragic about this program is that, you know, Nutritious meals were being offered, but millions of kids were going hungry every day at school because their parents had not signed them up for the program. And when you conducted a behavioral audit of the program to try and identify, well, why is it that more students aren't taking advantage of the program, we realized that there were at least two causes for this. First is that the application process was extremely burdensome. So imagine, Sanjay, you're a single parent, you're working three jobs trying to make ends meet. And the government's requiring that you fill out this extremely burdensome form that requires referencing multiple tax documents. The second is that there was a stigma associated with signing up kids for the public benefits program. So what the government did in turn was it leveraged a behavioral insight called the power of defaults. And it changed the school lunch program from an opt-in program to an opt-out program. The power of defaults. It's this idea that when you make something the default option, people are more likely to choose that option. They just go with it. It's a human bias that we all experience. So simply by changing the default, you can influence people's decisions. So now, parents only need to take an affirmative step if they want to actively unenroll their kids from the program. And as a result of this change, 12 and a half million more kids were now eating lunch at school every single day. This small little tweak, this little nudge that cost them nothing, had a huge effect. So Maya started looking for other instances where people needed a little nudge, especially situations where people intended to do something but didn't follow through. Maya calls this the intention-action gap. So when you look at people, they might have articulated goals, right? I want to exercise every day. I want to eat healthily. I want to go get my flu shot. But then in many ways... Our human nature gets in the way, right? And life gets in the way, right? So we prioritize short-term gains over long-term gains, right? It's hard for us to find that time in our day to go and get the flu shot exactly that moment in time. And so nudges are designed to help lift these barriers and help people actually act on their long-term best interest. You know, it's interesting. I, I think a lot of times people make a decision, they do something that they logically know is not in their best interest, and then they blame themselves. 
I lacked the discipline, I was too lazy to actually look into the details. But in some ways, what you're suggesting, Maya, is that nudge theory seems to suggest that's not always the case. It could be the way the options are laid out. I mean, how much of someone's bad decision, indecision, no decision is their specific problem versus the circumstances? Yeah, I mean, when I was playing the role of a government official, my philosophy was that the onus falls on government to make sure that we are presenting information clearly to people, that we are organizing choices in ways that are easy to navigate, that we lift burdens for families that may be struggling for time and resources so that they can take advantage of the programs we offer. And that mindset meant that we are always focusing on how we could better optimize policy design. Well, it's it's truly fascinating stuff. Are, are there are there people who are more nudgeable? It's a good question. Um, I think the right way to think about it is that people who already have that intention to do something are more nudgeable. There's the people whose minds you're not going to change, right? People who don't want to take the step. And then there are people who do, in fact, want to take the step. But definitionally speaking, nudges are choice-preserving. They're freedom-preserving which means there's no element of coercion involved. People have a free choice to change what they want the decision to be, but of course they're going to be influenced by the default. So what would be an example of that, Maya, that default effect? I think a good example of this is the opioid epidemic in this country. And one potential way that we can target the opioid epidemic from a behavioral science perspective is to investigate that one moment in the doctor's office when a patient comes in, let's say they just had a very terrible motorcycle accident or they've just had a major surgery, and they're getting that first prescription, right? The doctor is mm-hmm. dispensing that first dose to them. And oftentimes, doctors will have some sort of electronic system or a software system where they're going in and they're putting in, you know, the appropriate number of pills to prescribe. And what researchers found is that when they change the default number from 30 pills to 12 pills, that led to a 15% reduction in opioid prescriptions across an entire healthcare system. Hmm. Now, again, doctors can go in and manipulate that number, right? They can say, no, 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 12 is not appropriate. Given the severity of this person's condition, I absolutely need to raise it to 30. However, introducing this pressure point where they actually have to make a decision in which they're reflecting on that individual patient's needs, that's such an important part of the process. And as we can see, it seems like the 30 was overshooting a bit, right? And when doctors were, in fact, asked to make that more conscious choice, they ended up lowering the amount by and large. I can absolutely imagine that because, you know, you're in the office, you're cruising along, seeing patients to have those sort of defaults to sort of put you in one direction. People really do sort of respond to that. It's it's fascinating to watch. You know, I always think about this, this point, Maya, that we assume a certain level of logic in human behavior. Mm. Um, and maybe I've been thinking about that more lately, but <laughs> this idea that people would always act in their own self-interest, right? That... Uh, that you can predict that. They, they would act in their own self-interest. And yet we see so many times that people don't, even with good information. Mm. And I think about this a lot from, you know, from a medical standpoint. How does, how does the idea that, that people will not always act in their self-interest, they may behave irrationally in some ways, how, how does that figure into the sort of work you do? Yeah, well, I think it's important first to appreciate that we all fall prey to these biases, right? I mean, 
a, a lot of the research in behavioral science shows that the kinds of human biases that we experience day to day truly are universal, right? They are the way that our minds are wired. So we shouldn't be judgmental of ourselves when we, you know, do fall prey to status quo bias where we prefer things, you know, business as usual, we don't want to take a risk, or there's, you know, the sunk cost fallacy where we overweight investments we've made in the past. We're all experiencing this stuff. And I can tell you, Sanjay, as a behavioral scientist, I know all this stuff and I still fall prey to it each and every day. The good news, though, is that the more research that's done in behavioral science, the more we can be aware of where these biases lie and the more that we can design solutions around those biases. I really think this is all so fascinating, especially during this pandemic, when I found myself often thinking a lot about how we can change human behaviors. I mean, could we apply nudge theory to get more people to wear masks or get vaccines? What might that look like? Stick with us. After the break, we're going to bring you the story of a nudge in action. We're also going to hear more from Maya about how we can all apply these tips and tricks of nudge theory to our own lives. And now back to Chasing Life. If you live in the United States, you may have been subjected to a public health nudge recently. You probably didn't even realize it. Researchers and healthcare providers are trying to use nudge theory to get people vaccinated against COVID-19. I was pretty convinced we can move the needle, pun intended, on vaccination if we get the communications right and use behavioral science. And if we make it easy to remember and easy to follow through, we could really save lives. That's Katie Milkman. She's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business. She's also a nudge expert. In the fall of 2020, in anticipation of the release of COVID vaccinations, Professor Milkman launched two studies to find out what kind of messaging might be most effective to get people vaccinated. At the time, remember, COVID-19 vaccines weren't available yet, so she decided to focus her study on the flu vaccine. Now, there's no question COVID is different than the flu. That's not the point. The point is that all vaccines share a similar problem. People say they will get one, but then life gets in the way and they just don't get around to it. And those well-intentioned folks, that's the population Milkman was determined to reach. So we thought, let's test different things. Let's test as many ideas as possible and then get really good data back. What actually changes real vaccinations? Not self-report, not a survey saying what will change your behavior, but actual hard evidence. Because we know sometimes people say, all you have to do is tell me it's free. I'll get it or something along those lines. And then their actions don't align with what they claim will be the most persuasive. So we wanted that hard evidence, the actual vaccination rates. Professor Milkman and a team of researchers from around the country crafted over 20 different messages, each one of them designed to pull on a particular emotional string or human bias, something to encourage people to decide to get the flu vaccine. Then they partnered with Walmart pharmacies and with two specific healthcare systems in Pennsylvania, one urban, one rural. And together, they got to work. They sent out different messages to hundreds of thousands of people via text. One of my favorite ones was a joke. Have you heard the one about the flu? Don't spread it around. And the idea was like, it captures your imagination, captures your attention. Maybe you actually will retell the joke. That didn't work very well. In fact, it was our worst performing text messages. They also sent messages asking patients to dedicate their vaccine to a loved one. 
maybe like you would run a marathon or something for someone. They even tried some good old-fashioned peer pressure. Vaccination rates are up around the country. They, they're climbing. Join everyone else who's clamoring for vaccines and get one yourself. That was kind of in the middle of the pack. But there was one type of messaging that clearly worked the best across all demographics. And what that was was a simple message that either communicated a vaccine is reserved for you or a vaccine is waiting for you. Two slightly different ways of saying basically the same thing, which is that there's an allocation, it's yours, it belongs to you, and you should just now come and get it. The message was intended to convey a sense of ownership. Professor Milkman describes it as the endowment effect. The endowment effect says we overvalue things that belong to us or our possessions relative to things that don't. And so feeling ownership of that vaccine, that it belongs to you, might be part of what's going on. Like, oh, this is mine. And I know I don't want someone else to take my vaccine. Thank you very much. I value that a lot because it belongs to me and I would like to keep it. These simple ownership messages, they had a significant effect. Professor Milkman says they increased vaccinations from about 29 to 33 percent in pharmacies and from about 42 to 46 percent in doctor's offices. That may not sound like a lot, but that could translate to lots and lots of people. We already knew the endowment effect was powerful. We already knew that it was good to convey that something is recommended or is a default. But this was a very nice test showing this kind of language, if you're trying to compel people to adopt a behavior, this was very effective. They also found out... Multiple messages are better than a single message. So, like, harassment works. That's a really boring finding psychologically, but it's useful. They say the experiment was a success. But again, this was all about the flu vaccine. It was still unclear whether the same messaging would be effective for COVID-19. That's where Professor Henshen Dai comes in. She wanted to focus on the moment people schedule their appointments. Showing up for appointment is not necessarily a problem. The bottleneck to increase COVID-19 vaccination is really to get people to schedule the first appointment. Professor Dai teaches behavioral decision-making at UCLA. She worked with Professor Milkman on the flu vaccination study, so she was eager to apply their findings to the COVID-19 vaccines. She and her research partners worked with UCLA Health to send out thousands of text messages from January to February that leveraged that same ownership language to get people to make that first appointment. Our text message said, a COVID-19 vaccine has just been made available to you at UCLA Health. Claim your dose today. The message also included a link to book the appointment. The study was targeting people early on during the vaccination rollout who intended to get vaccinated but still hadn't. It wasn't designed to reach those opposed to the vaccine or those most hesitant. Getting vaccinated is not that difficult, but you do have to set up appointments. And you do have to make a plan for where and when you will get it. And you do have to drive there. So to the extent possible, we can reduce the hassle cost, reduce the inconvenience associated with getting a COVID-19 vaccine. We can help people close the intention action gap. Just as in the flu vaccination study, the ownership messages worked. On average, the text reminders were able to increase patients' appointment rates by six percentage points within the next few days. Overall, Professor Dai says more than 15,000 people got vaccinated after receiving these messages. Now, to be clear, this doesn't change the fact that our overall vaccination rates in this country currently remain lower than any of us would like. 
The truth is these behavioral nudges aren't the definitive solution for ending the pandemic or improving public health. But here's the thing. They're easy, they're cost-effective, and they're a proven way to influence behavior for good. I think the most surprising thing I take away from all this is just how much nudging is happening right under our very noses. And it's happening all the time. In my own life, I'm now going to be more aware of what the default options are around me and the messaging used to frame my choices. I think that kind of recognition can be really empowering because it gives us all a chance to think about the tools that work best on ourselves, the kind of framing that influences our own behavior. As Professor Milkman pointed out to us, once you start to see nudges all around you, you can begin to use them to manage your own goals. A huge part of the power of this is actually thinking about what are the barriers to change, what is preventing a behavior from being aligned with what you think it ought to be, and then trying to actually design tools or use systems that will break that particular barrier. So I'd say that's like the day-to-day wisdom from this theory is deconstruct what the barriers are. I really love this idea. I love it because it's simple, but it's powerful. And to make it even more relevant, I asked Maya Shankar how she deconstructs barriers in her own life. I wanted to know her top tips for applying nudge theory to herself. There's a couple of insights that I, I really like around, you know, goal setting and goal motivation. The first is called temptation bundling. And it basically says that you should bundle together a thing you really love with a thing that you don't love but you, that you know you ought to do. And you only allow yourself the indulgence when you're doing that hard thing. Um, so a good example of this is mm. I, I know that I should work out, but it's really hard in the morning to get myself, <laughs> you know, onto the treadmill or elliptical or weightlifting or whatever it is. So I happen to also love pop music. Like I love new music. <laughs> and so what I've done is I limit myself. I only allow myself to listen to my favorite songs while I'm working out. <laughs> There you go. So that's one. Um, Another is that there's research uh, showing that when we frame our goals and we work towards our goals, we should build in what's known as an emergency reserve into our commitments. So this is basically giving ourselves some slack. So instead of saying, you know, I have to work out every single day, and then, of course, because we're all human, we're going to miss a day. And then we go, we fall completely off the rocker, right? We just assume, okay, well, I lost my streak, so there's no point now. Instead, what you should say is, you know, I want to go to the gym every day this month, but I'm allowed to miss five days. I get five missed days, right? And that way, when we slip up on a day or two, it doesn't count as a failure. And it's much more likely that we'll keep at it. <laughs> Maya, I feel like you've you've taught us so much uh, in such a short time and and I'm going to temptation bundle. I really am. <laughs> like my my thing is ice cream. It's been that way since I was a child. I mm. it's just the one food. And so I just told my wife, you cannot keep it in the house. I will hunt <laughs> it down and I will find it. So then it was there was an ice cream place that's about a mile away. And if I wanted, I had to walk there. That I love was it. The, that was the deal, right? That is a version of temptation bundling. That's great. Yes. You get in your 20 minutes of exercise or whatever. I got my walk-in. I got my ice cream. I got to ask what your favorite flavor is. Oh, gosh. Peanut butter chocolate. Do you have a favorite? Uh, Mint chocolate chip and peanut butter chocolate, actually. Those are my two. I just had it last night. I had a (laughs) coconut milk ice cream that was dark chocolate and had little peanut butter strips in it. And I'm like, wow, this is dangerous in my presence. Oh, my gosh. Now, see? See, I'm temptation bundling right now my mind. Now you're thinking about it. (laughs) 
If you liked hearing from Maya or you want to learn more about the behavioral science behind change, you can check out her podcast. It's called A Slight Change of Plans. And if you have thoughts about how to apply nudge theory to your own life, I'd love to hear from you. What did you learn from today's episode and how are you putting it into action? If you've come up with a creative nudge, please let us know. You can record a voice memo and send it to asksanjay at cnn.com or leave us a message at 470-396-0832. We want to hear your voice and might even include your story on the next podcast. We'll be back Tuesday. Thanks for listening. Chasing Life is a production of CNN Audio. Megan Marcus is executive producer. Zoe Saunders is the senior producer. Our podcast is produced by Rachel Cohn, Jordan Gasparre, Audrey Horwitz, Paige Sutherland, and Grace Walker. Our production assistant is Allison Park, our medical writer, Andrea Kane. Tommy Bazarian is our engineer. And special thanks to Ben Tinker and Amanda Seeley of CNN Health, as well as Ashley Lusk, Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, and Daniel Cantor from CNN Audio. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.